So again, we're going to be in Psalm 5 uh, this morning. We want to focus on, this psalm focuses on pursuing righteousness in the midst of wickedness. When wickedness is stalking you. Imagine yourself working outside on an August day. Perhaps you're doing some landscaping or helping a friend do some landscaping outside. The sun is hot. Uh, your mouth gets parched. You just need some water. And if you're helping a friend, a friend comes and gives you a nice, clean glass of water or water bottle, whatever it is. And it just tastes so good. It's so refreshing. It's exactly what your body needs. But now imagine a different scenario. Imagine you're you're running as a team member in the Akron Marathon. You know, where they don't run the whole thing, but not many of us could do that. But for you're running a part of that. And you're, you're like two miles into that. And again, you're just drenched with sweat. Your mouth is parched. You really need a drink. And as you turn a corner, you see there's a water station up ahead. And you're thinking, great. That's exactly what I need to, to keep me running. And you go up to the water station and, and there's volunteers there handing out the cups. So as you as you kind of run by, you grab a cup without trying to spill it too much. And you and you just in between gasps of air, you, you try to like drink a little bit without drowning yourself as you're trying to breathe and juggle these two things. And as you do that, you like spit it all out because it tastes bitter and there's like grit in your mouth. And you look down on the cup and it's like brown. You just want to start puking because you don't know where they got that from. It, it looks like it looks like water they got from the Cuyahoga River after it like rained really hard. Right. You've seen that, right? It's not clear for those that don't haven't seen that. It's muddy. You know, the scripture uses the analogy of clean water and muddy water to teach us a very important lesson. Let's listen for a moment to Proverbs 25, verses 25 and 26. Like cold water to a weary soul, so is a good report from a distant land. Like a muddied spring and a corrupted well is a righteous man shaking before the wicked. Let's just pause just a minute to think about what he's saying. A good report. That's a report of righteousness. It's like refreshing cold water, even when it's from a distant land, meaning even if it's just just righteousness that you hear about at a distance, you know, far away. But. A righteous man that shakes or shaking before the a wicked is like is like that cup of muddy water. It's a muddy spring. It's it's a corrupted well. Now, when you say shaking, what, what is the Bible talking about? It's not talking about shaking with fear. It's a, it's a term that actually refers to shaking as in like stumbling and falling. It's a picture of the righteous man who is tempted by the wicked man in some way and falls before him. He, he, he comes down, he stoops down to the level of the wicked. So God's word says that the righteous and here when he says the righteous, let's just understand what he's saying. He's not saying the self-righteous. He's saying those that are committed to living for God, those that are imperfect and the only righteousness they have is really the righteousness from the Lord. 
but they have the fear of God and they want to live for him. But but that man, if he if he quakes before the, the wicked and he he comes down to their level, the Holy Spirit says he's like muddy, a muddy spring or corrupted or poisoned well, which is good for nothing. Right? Now, it's not it's not trying to make a full theological statement. The scriptures aren't saying the person loses their salvation. It, the scriptures are just saying that you there's something lost that could otherwise been gained. Something that was useful becomes unuseful. That's what the scriptures are saying. And, and just to expand this a little bit this morning, to try to apply it to our to our life situation that we're in. Um, large swaths of pastors and churches today are like the righteous man who shakes and falls before the wicked. They they pastor, these pastors would certainly claim to be orthodox and claim to be faithful and claim to be being used of God. And certainly they pastor churches that, that would make a claim to be true churches and orthodox. And yet, while they're making these claims, their actions speak louder than their words. We have pastors who are too busy keeping the, up with the latest fashions to be bothered to study the Bible. or to So they, they buy their sermons, they plagiarize their sermons, or they just, they just dumb it down because the people can't handle these things. So they just give them a little sermonette of 15 minutes and give them a pep talk and send them on their way and... Then he's back to considering, you know, what his latest Twitter post is, or X post, I think it's called now. Right? Um, doesn't have quite the ring that it used to. But more and more pastors are pushing progressive woke or feminist agendas, and there's many others, onto their churches, and the churches are just sleeping completely unaware because they're they're fine, they're entertained by the music and their pastor, and you know, they really don't notice too many of these changes. Keep in mind this. One, one person said this. It's one thing to engage with the culture, which is what Paul did, and quite another to be subsumed by it. At its core, the gospel, as well as the Christian life, is countercultural, an affront to worldly values. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to Romans, admonishes believers not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of their minds. Yet many modern evangelicals and their leaders seem more intent on currying favor with secular society than upholding the word of God, unquote. These pastors are like the worthless prophets that Jeremiah mentions in Lamentations. Lamentations 2 verse 14, where God talking about Israel's prophets says this. He says, your prophets have beheld for you worthless and ineffective visions. They're prophets, modern day pastors, right? Absolutely worthless and ineffective from the standpoint of God. He continues, they have not uncovered your iniquity so as to return you from captivity, but they have beheld for you worthless and misleading oracles, oracles of teaching of God. Right? But because the prophets didn't speak rightly, about Israel's sin. Israel was still in captivity. And God was telling Israel that their prophets were absolutely worthless. 
I'm afraid that God's going to tell many a so-called pastor that very thing, that their sermons or sermonettes were absolutely worthless, doing more harm than good. And as a, re- as a result, churches are strained from the truth of God's word. Churches are more concerned about how unconverted sinners are going to feel in their midst than they are with how God looks at them in their sin. God is a righteous God. And even for those that are in Christ, we know our imperfections. Being with a most holy God is frightening. We know the promises of God to purify us and He'll draw us close. But the one who loves God is concerned about all the areas of his life that lack conformity to our Savior, Jesus Christ. You've heard it said, be holy, for I am holy. And far too many Christians today and churches are not at all concerned about being holy. The churches are led astray. They're 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 just fine with accepting homosexual marriage and encouraging the LGBT community that that God loves you just the way you are. No need to repent, no need to change. And certainly um, those that say otherwise, oh, they're the bad ones. They're the evil ones because they're unloving. You know. But let's just talk to where we're at. Conservative church. There are legions of men and women in conservative churches who do want to live for the Lord, who are not taking sin seriously. They profess the name of Christ, but live an immoral lifestyle. They're engaged with pornography. They're stalking women. They're committing fornication or adultery. They're contributing to the demand for human trafficking, usually involving young women or even children. All these things are going on in the conservative part of the evangelical church today. Statistically, that might mean some of you have this going on in your lives. When those who are supposed to be God's people act like the wicked will become useless. Like a muddy spring or contaminated well. The question before us today, if you look at Psalm 5, is this How can you pursue righteousness when the wickedness is all around you? And you, you feel like it's pursuing you and stalking you and just waiting for a weak moment in your life to pounce upon you? Well, Psalm 5 gives us a little glimpse. A window into a life of the psalmist who had a, that kind of in, lived in that kind of environment. Enemies surrounded him. The wicked surrounded him and were pursuing him. And this prayer that we find in Psalm five gives us principles that we can apply. You could call them commitments, if you will, or convictions for righteous living in a world of wickedness in a world that 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 where the wickedness is pursuing you and stalking you. And the reason that we want to do this is so that we don't ruin our lives. Right? If you're truly saved, you will not be unsaved. God will not reject you. Right? But you can't disqualify yourself. 
You can't make your life a wreck and a mess and miserable. Yes, it can be forgiven. Your reputation with people is a lot harder to reestablish than it is forgiveness with your Lord. So it's important that we pursue righteousness for the Lord's sake. Let's just read this psalm together. And as I mentioned last week, the the superscription is very accurate. I will read that. The musical notation, I believe, along with other scholars, has been confused. So I will read the musical notation part from Psalm 6. I apologize if that confuses you. I've seen it. I can't unseen it. I unsee it, so that's how I have to read it. Okay. For, um, a Psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Yahweh. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God. For I, for to you I pray, O Yahweh, in the morning you will hear my voice. In the morning I will order my prayer to you. And eagerly watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil does not sojourn with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all workers of iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. Yahweh abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. But as for me, in the abundance of your loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will worship in fear of you. O Yahweh, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. There is nothing reliable in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices, let them fall. In the abundance of their transgressions, thrust them out, for they are rebellious against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. And may you shelter them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For it is you who blesses the righteous one, O Yahweh. You surround him with favor as with a large shield. For the choir director with stringed instruments, according to the Shemina. Now, just to give you a little brief background on Psalm 5. It's written by David. The psalm was originally, this psalm was originally intended to be sung with stringed instruments. And um, the one of the things it also mentions is according to the Sheminith, and we really don't know exactly what the Sheminith is. It, it could it, it literally means according to the eighth. So it could be an instrument, a stringed instrument that had eight strings. It, it very well could be a, a title for a specific tune, musical tune. Uh, it could be a reference to the eighth string of an instrument or some kind of musical notation to say, sing us an octave lower. We're, we're not exactly sure. But it's something like that. It indicates that it was indeed, this was, this was sung. Although we don't have the music to go along with that. This psalm gives us um, four principles or four convictions of how to pursue righteous living in a, in a wicked world. Let's look at the first one from verses 1 to 3. To live righteously in a wicked world, you must turn to Yahweh for help. 
It's not complicated. This, this part is not complicated. It's hard because when wickedness is screaming at you, particularly if you talk about this, the, this, the, the wickedness or that, it's a, that it appeals to the lust of our flesh, it's like screaming at you. It's not hard to turn to the Lord. Um, say it's not complicated, but it's difficult to turn away from sin at times. That's, that's the, the hard part, but it's not complicated. The psalmist says, just listen to his words. Give ear to my words, O Yahweh. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. O Yahweh, in the morning you will hear my voice. In the morning I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. David is coming to his God in prayer in a way that expresses, he's expressing dependency in so many different ways. First of all, by just, by just coming to him. David is humbly admitting, I need you, God. I need you. That, that's one of the things that's so hard for, for pagans to understand or the unrighteous to understand. They think they're okay. They think that they can, they can, um, that they can get along just fine without God. Literally, they realize that God is sustaining their very heartbeat and their very breath, even while they say that. But David's not like that. David knew he needed the Lord. He needed Yahweh. He prayed to Yahweh. And it's a sign of his dependency upon him. I mean, this is King David. This is a ruler. Yes, he's imperfect. We know he sinned in, in very serious and grave ways. But oh, for a leader to want to pursue righteousness and to lead the people in righteousness, you will have a you have a king, but you you'll see that king one day. He is leading you in righteousness. But but David, as the earthly king, was wanting to do that for his people. He prays to the Lord for help. He he submitted to Yahweh as look at look at the titles that he used. He first says, "O Yahweh, the, the covenant keeping name of God." This is this is how God revealed Himself uh, to His people. He's Yahweh, the Great I Am. He is the one who keeps His covenant, the personal name of God. Most Bibles translate this, uh, the Lord. But the Legacy Standard Bible translates this, Yahweh. So for those that aren't familiar with that, that's, that's the translation that I'm preaching from. And it's important for us to know the, the name of God, even if we don't know exactly how it sounded and we wouldn't sound it like a Hebrew would. I don't have enough guttural in my throat to say it like they would say it. Like God perhaps said it. We don't know. But it's better to use the name Yahweh when the text does than to say the Lord because you don't know if that's saying, is that his name or is that saying God's my master? Right? Those are two different words. But he is calling out to the covenant keeping God, the God who is ever faithful and praying and, and asking him for help. So he calls him, he calls out to God, oh, Yahweh. And notice what he says, how he acknowledges Yahweh. He says in verse two, he says, my king and my God. So here you have the king of Israel recognizing that he's not the ultimate king. Again, a major problem for kings today or presidents who think they rule everything. They need to acknowledge that there is a high king of heaven, a king of kings who rules over all. And, and David certainly did. He's expressing his humility and dependency 
even as the king upon the king, the king of kings. And he says, my God, right? the creator, the one who established everything, the one who gives him breath, the one who sustains everything that there is. He is praying to the one true God who is Yahweh, the king and the God of all, the only true God. And notice that he acknowledged Yahweh as the living God. The one that will hear. You know, the, the true and living God is not a God who sleeps. He doesn't need to be woken up. He, he isn't relieving himself in some bathroom far off spot where he can't hear you. Right? The scriptures mock false gods that way in the scriptures. That's why I'm using that language. God is the true and living God who is who ever listens and is ever there to provide help that his people need. So there's this humility in David's prayer. There's also an urgency in David's prayer. He, he prayed in the morning. Notice it's mentioned twice in verse 3. Oh, Yahweh, in the morning, you will hear my voice in the morning. It's establishing a priority. It shows us that David had a priority. Yes, he had a pressing need. But it shows us that he had a priority of praying in the morning. You might not be a morning person. That's okay. Your, your, your prayer time might be later in the day. But it's important to have some kind of prayer and acknowledgement first thing in the day saying, Lord, I need you. Yahweh, my God, my King, I need you. And, and notice how earnestly he prayed. Uh, notice the numerous uses of the first person singular possessive pronoun. My. My. Look at this. Give ear to my words, O Yahweh. Consider my meditation. Give, give heed to the sound of my cry for help. My king and my God. For to you I pray. O Yahweh, in the morning you will hear my voice. And in the morning I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. Why is he doing that? He's earnest. He, he is calling out in, in, in an urgency. Needing his God to answer him. And he wanted God to know it was his. He just wasn't like saying a prayer. We use that term. You know, did you say your prayers? Right? That's just like said in a way that is almost useless. Right? It, I mean, you can mean a good thing by it. So I'm not questioning your motives, but. The term itself, saying your prayers. I mean, we shouldn't just say our prayers. We should pray to God. He's your God. So you should appeal to him as my God. Hear me. Listen to me. Not because you don't have to say that because he's he's reluctant to listen. He's not. But to show personal act of submission, uh, to show some urgency to your prayer, to show personal faith in your prayer. It, it, basically using that pronoun shows that there's a vital relationship between you and God. When you do that. And that's what David is showing. He had a vital relationship. This wasn't just like doing something he should do because he was the king. And he wasn't just praying because he was in trouble. You know, people do that today. That people that otherwise want nothing to do with God. All of a sudden when they get into trouble, they... They pray, but they don't know the one to whom they pray. And so it's all kind of like it's distant. It's like, well, God, if you know, if you're there, you know, 
Get me out of this. No, it's my God. My God, hear me. Help me. And, and that's, that's, that's what he's doing there. And, and, he, and notice that he prayed, we could say transparently. Um, when I say transparently, he's, he's saying, he's calling out attention to his own personal acts of trust and faith and help. Um, look, he uses the word mer- words. So he, he's using words to pray. But you think, you say, well, yeah, don't most people? Well, no, that's not the only way you can pray. Notice, notice what he says. He says, give ear to my words. Or consider my meditation. Well, the meditation there isn't, isn't some transcendental meditation like you think about Eastern mysticism. This meditation is going on in, in the psalmist's mind. And in fact, the word can be translated in, in many tr- other translations, translated as groaning. The psalmist is, is pleading with God and it's, this meditation is so heavy upon his mind. It's like he's groaning. Right? So it's not just his praying, not just with words, but his body is involved in this. His mind is involved, yes, but his body. He is, he's groaning under the weight of his problem. And he is crying out to God. So he uses words. He uses, he uses meditation. He, he cries. You, you know, when you, when you have a, a pressing situation, perhaps a child that's very sick, you know what it's like to cry to Lord and plead with him for help. That, this is what he's doing. He's crying. He's using his voice. He's praying. He, all these different adjectives and descriptions of, of how the Lord is praying. This is no dry, sterile prayer time. It's easy. It's easy for our prayer time, our time with God to be dry and sterile, isn't it? It is for me. I'm sure it is for you. We have to guard it. And one of the ways that you guard it is by recognizing the danger that you're in that day. We just don't see it. You don't know what temptations lie ahead of you. So if you just stop and think about that. Lord, there are temptations today. I don't know what they are. But I desperately need your help. And maybe, maybe it's not you you always need a Lord's help, but maybe there's someone else in your in your life, a son or a daughter or a father or a mother or a grandparent or a friend who's making poor decisions. Right? Our prayer time shouldn't always be about like request for needs. And you're going to see that David actually doesn't get to a specific need until verse eight. So he just he's just going to deal with some things for the Lord before he gets there. But what I'm saying is, understanding your need helps you to pray in ways that you would never pray if you don't rightly understand your need. By rightly understanding your desperate situation, it causes urgency in your prayers that help it stay fresh and keep it from being sterile and dry. And, you know, it's easy to let your mind wander in prayer. But understanding your great need or someone else's great need Helps you stay focused. That you need your God to, to answer. And so you appeal to him for that answer. And as David prayed, he just didn't pray and say, well, I know i got to do this. There is actually great expectancy that he demonstrates. He says, in the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. And, and the word or, uh, order there, notice he, it's italicized. 
Uh, my prayer is italicized and eagerly is italicized. I'm looking at verse 3. In the morning, I will order to you. It's in the context of prayer. So my prayer is, is added there to, to help you understand the, the context. He ordered his prayer. He actually thought about his prayer. He just wasn't actually praying off the cuff. He wasn't just praying in like just on a pure, raw instinct. He thought about how he needed to pray and he prayed accordingly. He ordered his prayer. You see, um, in our day, sometimes we think prayers all should just be spontaneity, spontaneous. Right? But often, the kind of prayers we need to be prayed need to be thought out scripturally. How do I need to approach this in prayer in accordance with God's will? And David is demonstrating some kind of, of order, some kind of approach in prayer. Again, he's he, he's not just crying out help. He does that. Right? But he is approaching God in a, in a very theological manner. He's thinking through the truths of God and allowing those truths to inform his prayers. And then he look how verse 3 ends. He will not only pray to Yahweh, but he'll do what? Eagerly watch. Notice the word eagerly is added because that's that's really the, the, the idea here, it helps you understand that he's saying, I'll, I'll not, I'm just not going to watch with my eyes. I'm going to eagerly anticipate an answer. My God will answer and I will eagerly anticipate that answer. It, he, he understands that he needs an answer from God. And however, however God chooses to answer, the psalmist is going to eagerly wait for that answer. He's going to watch. Uh, Habakkuk uses this very same word, watch, in a similar context. When he had witnessed how, how the wicked Chaldeans, um, actually he was told by God how the wicked Chaldeans are going to invade and they're going to conquer Judah. Habakkuk was just overcome. How, Lord, how could you use such a wicked nation to judge your people? The, the Chaldeans are, are much, they were much more wicked than Israel was. But, but God was, going to use the wicked Chaldeans to judge his people. And Habakkuk was like choking on that truth. I mean, he just he just really had a hard time with that. And and you can see that in, in the book of Habakkuk. But he says this in Habakkuk 2.1, after hearing all this, he says, I will stand on my guard post and station my se- myself on the fortification. I will keep watch to see what he speaking about God, to see what he will speak to me and how I may respond when I am reproved. He was watching. He was waiting for God's answer. And Habakkuk expected to be reproved. And he wanted to be ready to respond rightly, not in self-defense, but to respond rightly to God. Right? That idea of keep watch, it's like being on a, a guard post. You're expecting God to answer so as we think about how to apply these things, the, the, the commitment or principle is this, that, that to pursue righteous living in the midst of wickedness, even when wickedness is like pursuing and stalking you, you need to turn to God in prayer. And as I mentioned, this is us every day. We don't, we don't have to know like David's particular situation in order for this to apply to us. It's maybe good that we don't know what the exact trouble was. We live every day of our lives battling on three fronts. Right? We have our own flesh. We have the world. And we have our enemy, Satan. 
And so again, just to help ramp up the idea that you are not living in peacetime. Right? Consider these things. Understand that that Satan is out to get you. The world is out to get you. And your flesh actually is pulling you towards wickedness, not towards righteousness. So do you realize the danger that you are in each and every day? Do you pray with dependency and urgency and watchfulness as, as David prayed? Now, if you're going to pursue righteousness in the midst of wickedness, you must learn to pray to Yahweh, to the only living God who is the King of kings, who is the God who sustains you every single day. You must know that that God will answer. And when he answers, do you know that he always answers? He always answers. You sometimes and I sometimes feel like he doesn't answer, but he always answers. Sometimes he answers yes. And those are really sweet times where you can see his answer. I mean, just being honest, right? Those are really sweet times. We see God answer prayer. There are some times where he says no. And we don't hear that audibly. We just know that because we don't see the answer to our prayer. And we sometimes we find out much later that that was a no. Other times he just says, not now. Not now. And we see an answer to prayer years later. Or maybe a decade later. Or maybe three decades later. There's many a mom that has prayed for a son's salvation or a daughter's. That didn't see that until decades later. God is, will answer. He will always answer. So we, when we pray, pray expecting an answer. Now you might say, well, if God is, is all sovereign, is in control of everything, um, how, how, put it this way, why would we pray if God's totally sovereign over everything? Now, I've asked that. You probably have asked that. What that is, is a misapplication of the theological truth that God is sovereign. Since God is sovereign, that shouldn't motivate us to pray. But a twisting of the doctrine, we, we kind of get lazy and we say, well, since God's sovereign, I guess I don't have to pray. That's that pull towards wickedness. Because prayerlessness is a lack of dependency upon God. So the sovereignty of God drives us to pray when we think about it rightly. And you say, well, how does a sovereign God who's determined the beginning from the end, how, like, how does my prayer make any difference? How does he use that? Well, I can't tell you. Because scripture doesn't. But I can tell you that he does hear and he does respond. Sometimes to, to prayers that I think are, are like maybe not all that important in, in the scale of eternity. Uh, for example, we needed some more chairs, right? So I meant to do it. I meant to place the order early in the week. I right? didn't do it till Wednesday. But when I did it, I said, "Lord, allow these chairs to get here in time for Sunday." But then when I placed the order, it said they were going to be delivered Monday. Like, okay, all right, I guess that's a no. So I didn't pray anymore. But lo and behold, Saturday morning, I get a text message: "Your order is out for delivery." And sure enough, by noon, or thereabouts, the chairs were delivered. But usually, those kind of standard orders, they don't deliver on Saturday. That waits till Monday. So I don't know how all well that happened, but God arranged it. 
so we could have the extra chairs this morning. That's a, really a, a small thing, isn't it, in light of the serious difficulties that people are in? God chose to answer it. So you might say, well, that was just coincidence. No, it's not coincidence. It's the eyes of faith see it as an answer to prayer. And could, have, could God have said no? Sure, he could have. And we would have managed in another way. But in his kindness, he chose to answer yes. And so I tell you that to encourage you to pray expecting an answer, even over something as simple as, like, we need some more chairs. Can you provide some more chairs for us? So God will supply what his people need. And again, I've spent most of my time on point one. So how in the world? <laughs> um, I, I think the right thing, uh, boy, decision time. Well, let me just see how far I get. I know I can get farther into this next point. We'll just take it from there. So the first commitment or principle to live righteously or wickedly in a wicked world is to turn to Yahweh for help. Second, to live righteously in a wicked world, you must affirm God's righteousness. You must affirm God's righteousness. Look at verses four to seven. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil does not sojourn with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all workers of iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. Yahweh abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. But as for me, in the abundance of your loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will worship in fear of you. What, what is the psalmist doing in these? He, he is refining his theology about God. He's going back. He's a Affirming that God is a God of righteousness, which feeds into his motivation for prayer. That those that are pursuing him are the wicked and they're pursuing wicked ends. David's wanting to live righteously. And so he's saying, God, I know you'll answer in part. He says, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. You don't want my enemies to, to win the final victory over me. You don't want me to fall into wickedness myself. So he says, you are not a God who delights in wickedness. And sometimes we have to remind ourselves of that when we see wickedness running rampant around us. So he, he doesn't delight in wickedness at all. And then he says, to, to reinforce that, he says, evil does not sojourn with you. It's not a word we use, sojourning. Is, but it, it, it's the idea of dwelling. Evil does not dwell with you. In the book of 1 John, the apostle picks up on this whole idea that evil does not sojourn with you when he says that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Not one dark spot. Nothing. Nada. Doesn't exist. God's not tempted by evil. It is nothing in there. And because of that, then the, then the wicked cannot dwell with God. And, he, and that's what the psalmist does next. He affirms God's absolute separation from wickedness and that saying that evil does not sojourn with you. He affirms God's condemnation of the boastful. He says the boastful shall not stand before your eyes, meaning that in the judgment as they stand before him, they will fall in that judgment. All right. Those who trust in Yahweh by faith will stand in the judgment day, but not so those who are boastful of themselves. Then, then David affirms God's hatred of workers of iniquity. He says, you hate all workers of iniquity. That, that's very strong language. But it is true and accurate. 
you have heard it said, God hates sin. True. You've also heard it said, God hates sin, but loves the sinner. The problem with that statement is, it's not accurate. And you would say, well, doesn't God so love the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life? Yes. We can affirm one and the other. And that shows the great depth of the love of God that would span and turn God's hatred to love. The reality is that God hates the wicked doesn't mean he's not saving the wicked because you and I would be lumped into the wicked category and, and he has saved us and brought us to know him. But understand that, that Psalm 5 present, presents that harsh reality. I say harsh because it is harsh. But it's a righteous harshness. That God hates all workers of iniquity. Iniquity is another word for sin. David affirms God's destruction of liars. And because God hates them, he will destroy them. He says, you will destroy all those who speak falsehood. And Yahweh abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Again, a very strong word. That the man of violence, that our society kind of escalates and says, that's our hero. God hates. God abhors that kind of person. And you say, well, this is spoken by David. David was a mighty warrior, and he had his mighty men. Did God hate them? No. That wasn't, that wasn't the kind of bloodshed that they were talking about. God authorized most of the bloodshed that David did as a, as a form of judgment. David didn't go and kill people for his own namesake. He did it in obedience to God and preserving his nation, defending his nation. What we're talking about here is those who just love bloodshed. Right now, there's a lot of bloodshed going around in our, in our country. We're talking about abortions, shootings in Chicago, but all that pales to how some other cities live. Some in South America are just extremely violent. There's no value to life at all. South Africa right now is just it's just become a, a violent, very violent country. Lots of violence being enacted on um, on farmers. Not not only them. There's the, there's there's no value to human life in some of these countries. That's that's what God is talking about. Because when you kill someone because of the image of God is in that person, you are attacking God. And so God says that the man of bloodshed, the man of deceit, right? He abhors. How does David look at how this contrast? There's actually in the Psalms two sets of contrast, so you probably picked up on it when you're reading it. Verse 7 is that first contrast. But, like God God hates, God abhors, God can't dwell with the, the evil. So the psalmist is listing all these things that are true. And he says, but, as for me, and you might think, well, David's being a little bit prideful there, isn't he? No, no, keep reading, keep reading. But as for me, in the abundance of your loving kindness, I will enter your house. That's the only way anyone ever enters God's house, ever approaches God, is by his loving kindness. The word there is hesed, which is, it speaks of loyal love, steadfast love. 
We, we translate it to the New Testament term of grace. Okay? In the abundance of Yahweh's loving kindness, He will bring those who seek Him into His presence. Which requires a purification because, because all these things are still true. David's, I mean, uh, God is not satisfied with where David is at. In order for David to spend eternity with, with Yahweh, all the evil within him will have to be purged. David says, he recognizes that. He says, at your what? At your temple? At your holy temple, I will worship in fear of you. So he's going to worship. He's going with a reverential fear of God, even though he is the chosen king of Israel. He knows that he's within the covenant of God. And, and so he, he, but he still goes with that reverential fear, knowing that he is, he still has sin within him. He struggles with sin, but he's coming before a holy God not because he's earned that right, but simply by God's loving kindness. So all, all that's going on in this. So when you live, to, to live righteously in a work, wicked world, you have to just go through in your mind and affirm how God hates all those things and recognize that the only way to approach God is by trusting him through faith. We can never be good enough on our, on our own. We affirm God's righteousness and then he gives us that righteousness by faith. Now, let me just pause a minute and just say, some of you might be saying, you know what, I've already messed up. My life is already that muddy spring. I'm, I'm the contaminated well that Scripture talks about. But there's good news for you. God can change that. If you will simply turn to Him by faith. Right? The, the Lord God sent His Son to die on the cross for your sins. To be buried, to be raised in newness of life, and even now is enthroned at the right hand of the Father, building his church and interceding for his church and calling sinners to himself. Through his Holy Spirit, he is building his church. So perhaps even someone today who is outside or someone who is inside the church walking in a contaminated way, that the Lord can cleanse you. And He desires to cleanse you if you will but just turn by faith to trust Him. Oh, beloved, know that the Lord desires to do this. You must turn to Him, not in some religious way, not just in like, yeah, I went to church today, so God owes me something. No. like You need to be transformed from the inside out. You need to be born again. And I can't do that for you. You can't do that for you. Your parents can't do that for you. Only God can do that for you. And He promises to do it if you will turn by faith to Jesus Christ. He will give you that faith. And He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's the beauty of this. That's what brings joy. No matter how contaminated our lives are before Christ, or even as a believer, if your life is contaminated now, He'll cleanse it. And he will train you to walk in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You've got to turn from sin and turn toward Christ. Believe in him, trust him, and seek him to live righteously. The third commitment or principle for living righteously in a wicked world is that you must petition Yahweh to lead you in paths of righteousness. Let me just go through this. In verses 8 to 10, we see this. Oh, Yahweh, lead me in your righteousness because of my 
foes. Make your way straight before you. So, so here we are in verse 8, and we're getting to his first really specific prayer. He, earlier he said, you know, hear my prayer. Uh, hear the sound, heed the sound of my cry for help. He's crying for help. But here in verse 8, we get to his first specific request, and it's, Lord, lead me in righteousness. Lead me in righteousness. Help me to be the righteous person. And he says, lead me in your righteousness. So it's, it's not just David's idea of righteousness. It's Yahweh's idea of righteousness. And he says, because of my foes. Why does he say because of my foes? Because if David falls to their level, if David falls to sin, it will give his foes cause for rejoicing. And ultimately, this isn't about David. David understands that as goes the king of Israel, so goes the nation. So goes the name of God. So when, when you sin, when I sin, it's not just about us. I mean, if you sin and bring embarrassment to your name, if, if, you're, if you're married or uh, if you're parents, you kind of bring shame to, to, into the family as well. But when you're a believer, you're part of the family of the body of Christ. So you bring shame upon your local church. But even more significantly, you bring shame upon the name of God. And by my sin, by your sin, when it's done in front of the wicked, you know what we do? We give ammunition to the enemies to shoot at us with. And they're right. And so David prays, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes, so that they won't rejoice over their wickedness, so that God's name will be magnified. He's asking the good shepherd to lead him. And, and he's, he's pleading with God, saying, lead me in your righteousness. Make, make your way straight before me. What, what he's doing here is similar to what Paul does in Philippians 2.12. He says, there the Apostle Paul says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So Paul clearly uh, ties in the, 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 the tension between recognizing that God's at work in you and your pursuit of righteousness. And what we see in this prayer of David is his pursuit of righteousness. And if you're going to grow in righteousness, you've got to learn to pray for righteousness. Yes, there's more to do than just that, but pray. Ask God to lead you in his righteousness. And then he, he, he kind of uh, goes into the ways in which his foes were living in unrighteousness, in wicked ways. David affirms that what they're doing is evil and wrong. Then he just goes through this list, and we'll just go through it quickly. He says, um, there is nothing reliable in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. I mean, just you just think about some of these things, especially the imageries that he's drawing. Their, their inward part is destruction itself. They're, they're, they're dead inside and the, 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 the rot is decaying. It's like gangrene. It's killing them from the inside. Their throat is an open grave. Right? So an open grave, you know, the body's in that grave and it's just stinking, the flies, just there's just nastiness. It's in every way, it's awful. And he's using, notice he's using words that speak about the mouth. Because out of the mouth, uh, the heart speaks, what Jesus said. And he's saying they flatter with their tongue. So they're, 
doing awful, wicked things, but with their tongue, they're flattering. That could, could have been flattering David. Yeah, we don't know all the details there. But they're using their tongue for evil purposes. And in verse 10, he prays that God would hold them guilty. Hold them guilty, O God, by their own devices, let them fall. You know, they had, this shows us that they had set traps for David. They had devised things. And all David is doing is saying, those traps they set for me, let them fall into them. So whatever that, whatever that might look like, let, let them fall by their own devices. In the abundance of their transgressions, another term for sin, thrust them out. Meaning, don't let them stand in your presence. He says there, it gives us the reason, for they are rebellious against you. So again, this isn't ultimately about David. This is about God and God's righteousness. They are disrespecting God. And, and David calls for judgment. So to live righteously in a wicked world, you must turn to Yahweh for help. Affirm God's righteousness, Yahweh's righteousness, and petition Yahweh to help you, to lead you in righteousness. And fourthly, to live righteously in a wicked world, you must remember the blessings Yahweh brings His righteous people. Remember the blessings Yahweh brings His righteous people. Because the pursuit of righteousness is difficult. There's going to be hard times. There's going to be times where God... Calls, calls you to persevere in this fight. To fight the good fight. It requires perseverance. So you must remember what lies at the end of the fight. Which is rest. Which is refuge. Look at verses 11 and 12. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. And may you shelter them. That those who love your name may exult in you. For it is you who blesses the righteous one, O Yahweh. You surround him with favor as with a large shield. David was, is remembering, he's reminding himself of the protection that God provides. Look at the terms that are, that are used there. He's saying, let all, notice this is no longer just about David, the sinners, and God. He's, he's saying, let all who take refuge in you be glad. He has the greater good in mind here. He's turning his prayer outward. It's not just inward. He's not just saying, let me, let me take refuge in you and be glad, but let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them sing for joy. What does he say? Let them ever sing for joy. Right? That's the future. You, you, you and I live in a difficult, sinful world. And all things considered, God has given us a pretty, relatively cushy, soft place to live in this world. Just Go look at how Christians are living in other places, being persecuted for the faith, and it'll help give you some perspective that, relatively speaking, we have it pretty easy right now. So we need to learn how to live for Him when it's relatively easy. In case the heat gets turned up, we can still live faithfully to Him when the heat's turned up. And He's turned up in Christians in other places. So we can need to remember them and pray for them as they go through grave difficulty. But that, that, that this would prayer would become a reality for us and for them. No matter what um, situation the Lord has you in, these truths will guide you and help you to pursue righteousness in the midst of wickedness. He, he, he calls, he prays to God. He said, may you shelter them. May you pray for them. Be that shelter for them. Notice the language there, the, the shelter. And, and then he, he says, in the end of verse 12, you surround them as with favor, 
as a large shield. So the, the, the word, the large shield is used because this is the, the word that's used represents a, a full body shield. Right? So it's not just the smaller shield that would, that would protect from some things like a blow of a sword uh, in hand-to-hand combat, but this is the full body shield right? that's going to protect the full length of the warrior. So he, he's describing God, that, that favor that surrounds God's people like a big full body shield. This is what God does. This is the protection that God provides. And you say, well, does he do this today? Yes, he does. I mean, just listen. John 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish ever. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. I mean, he's just giving you a double defense there. He's saying, no one can snatch them out of my hand. The Father has given them to me. They're my sheep. I'll protect them. My name's on it. My reputation is on the line. I will protect them. But just in case, I'm going to give you a double warning, a double double blessing, a double promise. The Father is protecting them as well. So not only can no one take them out of my hand, no one can take them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. One in purpose, one in intent, and protecting the sheep. Do sheep go through difficult times? Yes. Did our Lord go through difficult times? Yes. That's by God's providence. So God has a way of protecting his people through these kind of difficulties that doesn't necessarily imply that, that you're going to physically survive the experience. Many disciples are martyred for their faith. But they live today rejoicing. And their bodies are going to be resurrected. So in the, in the end, God's protecting his sheep. Um, think about what, what, is, what we're told in Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, might, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. That's the kind of protection the Lord provides his people. And, and that produces joy. When you remind yourself of the blessings, the favor of God, that brings joy. And he kind of piles up these terms for joy. Let them ever sing for joy. Let them be glad that those who love your name may exult in you. That's that's shouting with exuberance at God for what he has done. We tend to be conservative and and reserved here because we we want to honor God. We don't want to be showy. We We don't want to attract attention to ourselves. We don't want to be fake and all of that. But you will not be able to contain yourself when you see God. And it's okay at times if you react with some joy and expression saying, hallelujah. Think about what God has done. Think of what he's going to do for you and what he already has, but what he will do. No one can snatch you out of his hand. And that brings joy. It should bring joy. It brings some, again, vitality back into the prayer life when you, when you contemplate these things and remind yourself of these things. Beloved, I, I, I love you. And the Lord loves you. And He desires you to walk in righteousness. And I desire to help you walk in His righteousness. And so, heed the word of Psalm 5. Pray for the Lord to lead you in righteousness. 
to help you and pursue righteousness. Commit yourself to pray this way and to pursue the Lord's righteousness. And just pray and trust Him to do the work that He is desirous to do in your life. And if you are not in Christ today, just remember the description of the wicked fits your current situation and you are in a very bad place. If you were to die today in that place, you would spend eternity under God's judgment and wrath, and justly so. But if you will heed His warning, listen to Him, be humble, follow His feet, call upon His name for salvation, He will save you and adopt you as His child and surround you with His favor because He's full of loving kindness. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, You are a God full of loving kindness, steadfast love, so quick to forgive, abounding with grace and favor. Oh God, I just pray that you would do your work in our lives, calling sinners to repentance and faith, bringing them to new birth in Christ. And Lord, helping the saints to walk in obedience to your word, helping us to pursue the path of righteousness for your name's sake, Lord, bring vitality to our prayer life. To, as we help us to turn to you by way of principle and habit in the morning, seeking your help to live for you that day. We have many enemies that surround us, Lord God. Please help us to focus on you, to affirm your righteousness and holiness, and to remember the great blessings that you provide those who are your righteous, those whom you make righteous. Lord God, do your work in our lives individually, but also collectively at Medina Bible Church, that we would be known as as a a church uh, uh, that is pursuing holiness and righteousness, a church that will not compromise your word either in doctrine or in practice. Oh God, please help us to honor and glorify you and to be um, qualified to be your ambassadors Shining examples of who Christ is. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.